What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful businesses. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with AJ Gold. AJ is a serial entrepreneur. He's a software developer who's been building online businesses since the early 2000s. And today he's spending most of his time working on a product called GMAS. AJ, welcome to the show and thanks for joining me. Thanks, Cortland. I'm super excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. So tell us a little bit about GMAS, AJ. What exactly does it do and why do people use it? GMAS is a plugin for your Gmail account. And what it lets you do is it lets you send email campaigns directly from inside your Gmail account. So most people have heard of MailChimp. MailChimp is the uh, ubiquitous name in email marketing. So if you know what MailChimp does, uh, we provide that functionality inside Gmail. Okay, let's say you don't know what MailChimp does. What exactly is an email campaign? Why do you need any sort of special tool to help you send emails rather than just Gmail itself? Right, because uh, when you're sending an email to a friend or to a coworker, that's easy to do. You just type up a message and you hit send. But anytime you get into sending a higher volume of email, that gets a little trickier because most Consumer email systems like Gmail or Yahoo Mail or Outlook.com or or, or Live.com aren't equipped to handle a large send uh, from one single user where multiple emails are going out simultaneously. So uh, some extra software is needed when you're sending out thousands of emails as opposed to one email at a time. Yeah, and I've seen people run into this limit unsuspectingly where they're like, hey, I've got an email list now. I just want to send you know, 200 emails through my Gmail account. And then Gmail's like, you can't do that. <laughs> and sometimes people are pretty surprised to see that that's not actually the case. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So you actually might be able to get away with 200 emails just by plopping those 200 addresses into the two field, putting in your subject and your message and hitting send in Gmail. It's not the best idea. There's better ways to do it like using my product or someone else's product that does something similar. But in a lot of cases, our users are sending higher volume than that. And what a lot of people don't know is that their regular Gmail accounts allow them to send 500 emails a day. And if you're on the professional version of Gmail, which is called G Suite, Google actually lets you send 2,000 emails a day just through your regular Gmail account without my tool, without anything special. So one of the coolest things about GMAS is just how much success that you've had with this product with such a small team. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. GMAS makes how much? $120,000 a month in revenue? Approximately, yeah. yeah. We're, we're growing slowly and steadily, so this month will even be a bit more. That's humongous. And you're doing it with a tiny team. I mean, you and just a handful of remote workers are building this. What does your team look like exactly? So I'm a software developer myself. I write most of the code for the product. I have one contract developer who works for me part-time. 
I have a couple of Philippines-based virtual assistants who work for me full-time. I have a part-time marketing person and a part-time PR person. And and then some freelancers on Upwork who help me with design and illustrations and some WordPress stuff. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it right now. Yeah, it's the exact opposite of sort of the prototypical Silicon Valley startup where you have a fancy office and you're you know paying all these full time employees extremely high amount of money to help you with your business. Yep, and there are several of those types of companies who we compete against. Exactly, and so. You're kind of, in a way, living the indie hacker dream. I mean, almost everybody that I talk to in the indie hackers community wants to achieve what you've achieved, running a small team and generating you know, an outsized amount of revenue. How did you do it? How do you actually get to this place? Well, um, I've had a long career in software development and email marketing products specifically. So my first email marketing product was a product called Django Mail, which I built and ran from 2003 to about 2013. I sold it in 2013 to a private equity group. And then I spent a couple of years just thinking a lot and reading and hanging out at Starbucks and trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I didn't think I would ever go back into the email space, But something interesting happened in 2014, which caught my attention. And what happened was Google released an API for Gmail. And even though Gmail had been around for for a while, at uh, at least 10 years at that point, this was the first time that programming on top of Gmail became a lot easier. So there were ways in the past to integrate with Gmail, but with the API, it made things a lot easier and cleaner. And I've always been a big Gmail fan. I tend to spend my day inside my Gmail account in one form or another. And so when the API was launched, it just started this process of creative juices flowing throughout me, thinking about things that would be interesting to build. And that's when I started building products on top of Gmail. And GMAS is my main product that I spend most of my time on. So let's rewind and go back to the very beginning of the story. 2003, you built your first online business, I presume, called Django Mail. Most people listening to this show are sort of fledgling entrepreneurs, people who want to get started. What was it that sort of lit a fire under you and convinced you to start a business rather than just taking a normal job? Well, that was something I was considering. So I graduated from university in 1998. And if you're old enough to think back that far, that was a time where every software company, every internet-based company was hiring anybody they could get their hands on. So the job market was really green. There were plenty of jobs to be had. And I was certainly interviewing for jobs. But you know, I don't know. I just, nothing really resonated with me. And in the summers in between my university years, I was building websites for friends of my dad that owned small businesses. And I just enjoyed that freedom, that independence, that creativity. And I felt like, you know, a lot of people, when I would say, oh, I've started my own software company, they'd say, wow, congratulations, you know, what a risk you're taking. But at that time, back in 1998, it didn't feel like a risk, just because I knew 
I knew I could always get a job if it didn't work out. And I was single. I didn't have any dependents. I was living at home with my parents. I just, it was the perfect time in my life to experiment. And so I started out as a web development company. And then one of my projects for a client involved sending email campaigns. And that project is what evolved into the Django Mail product. And actually, if you're familiar with the email marketing space at all, so if you've heard of MailChimp or Constant Contact or iContact, a lot of the competitors of Django Mail in that era were started under a similar story. A company that was a web development company that had an email project for a client and then turned it into a product. How did Django Mail go for you? You ended up running this company for something like 10 years. What are some of the bigger milestones in that story? At first, it was easy to grow. It felt easy to grow just because by virtue of how growth works, it's really it's easy to go from 100 customers to 200 customers to 300 customers. And it gets a little more difficult to go from 1,000 customers to 2,000 customers to 3,000 customers. And my growth for Django Mail was fueled entirely by pay-per-click advertising. And so this was before there was Facebook ads and before there was Twitter ads. This was actually, if you are old enough to recall, a platform called Overture. Overture was the original pay-per-click search model, even before Google AdWords. So Overture was what first fueled Django Mail's growth. And then Google AdWords came along and that fueled growth even more. And at my peak, I was spending... I spent $90,000 one month on Google AdWords growing Django Mail. Our average spend was around $60,000. But this was a pay-per-click advertising-fueled growth model. And you were confident that you would make up that amount of money in terms of customers actually coming in and paying you to use your software? Yeah, I was more confident in the beginning when we were spending less and perhaps less confident towards the end. What justified it for me is that Every now and then, we'd get what I referred to as a whale of a customer. So a whale, to me, was someone that came in and needed to send 5 million emails a month or 10 million emails a month, where we'd be billing anywhere from $20,000 a month to $50,000 a month. So if I could land one of those a quarter, then it made the investment in Google AdWords worth it. Our median customer back then was paying a couple hundred bucks a month. So we weren't making money on those customers, but we were making money on the whales. What's interesting to me about this business is that you're kind of running it in a little bit of the dead zone of the internet era. I mean, there's the dot-com crash, and then sort of the, the time you started GMAS, 2003, there wasn't much going on online. There weren't many investors taking risks on companies. There weren't many people starting startups. How did that affect your decisions that you made with running this business? And you know, how is that different from the environment today? In a way, it was a simpler time. So now I could argue that there's the distraction or even the lure of going out and raising money because email marketing is a pretty proven business model now. Whereas when I started with Django Mail in 2003, it really wasn't. And there wasn't as supportive of a community around solo software developers starting SaaS businesses back then. So, you know, there was no indie hackers, there was no product hunt, there were no 
incubators in every major city to help tech startups grow. It was kind of the wild west of launching software companies. And so in a way, it allowed me to focus more purely on the art of creating a good product and building a business without a lot of things that compete for my attention now. Like I find it harder to focus and be productive today than I did back when I started. Like back when I started, it was easy to code for 14 hours straight and make massive amounts of progress in a day on a product. Whereas now, now it's a little harder. I mean, you also didn't have smartphones and your Instagram or Twitter or yeah. Facebook blowing up yeah. while you're writing code. Right. Yeah, I, that's right. Yep. So a lot of these resources that you talk about, incubators in every city, um, you know, all these online blogs and, and websites like Indie Hackers can be distractions, but they can also be helpful because you can go there to learn how other people are building these businesses and get funding, et cetera. How did you learn back then to make the right decisions when there weren't that many resources and you sort of had to figure things out on your own? Yeah, um, it was just, it was trial and error. And, you know, one of the things that's great about the internet now is that there's tons of resources that I can read. So if I'm wanting to learn about digital marketing, I can read a million articles about that. If I'm wanting to read about raising money, I can read a million articles about that. Back then, that wasn't the case. So it was was self-taught. It was trial and error. It was going to meetups and conferences and talking to people. So the learning was there, but you had to make more of an effort to extract the information you needed. You know, there were a lot of things that I wish I could have done differently with Django Mail. So just like to give our audience like some metrics and some comparison, Django Mail and MailChimp started the same year. MailChimp like took off and grew like a rocket ship and is probably worth over a billion dollars now. Django Mail kind of hit its peak at around five or six million dollars a year in revenue. And it's easy now for me to look back and reflect upon that time period and think about what I could have done differently to attain better growth. And actually, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and I'm trying to apply some of those thoughts and learnings to what I'm doing now. What are some of those learnings? I'm sure we'd all be happy to hear. Yeah, well, so email has generally been a high margin industry. Like anybody that has had a successful email marketing platform is probably operating on pretty decent gross margins, like anywhere from 20% to 60%, just based on your business model. And I remember when I was first trying to get Django Mail acquired, I had a potential buyer accuse me of starving the company for cash and cheating the company out of its own growth by pocketing the profits rather than reinvesting the profits and growth. And that was my model at the time because I just didn't I didn't know any better. I didn't I didn't have enough of a growth I didn't have enough of a marketing mindset or enough of a sales mindset to know how to reinvest cash into a business to grow it. And so Django Mail became this highly profitable machine where I would pocket the profits, but couldn't figure out how to spend the profits to grow the business. And a lot of the other players in the space at that time did figure that out. So, so MailChimp figured that out and iContact figured that out. And what's interesting is that when it came time to sell Django Mail, I sold it in 2013. There were other companies 
that were around the same size in terms of revenue, um, like in that five to seven million dollar a year revenue mark, that sold for way more than Django Mail sold because they were on a good growth tra- trajectory, whereas Django Mail had flatlined for the prior three years. And so one of my biggest lessons is that valuations of companies aren't based on revenue and profit, but based on growth trajectory. And so now with GMAS, it's an interesting time for GMAS because GMAS is growing and it's profitable. And I'm trying not to do what I did with Django Mail before, which was pocket the profits and not reinvest in growth. And I told myself, I'm not going to do it this time, but I'm getting caught. I'm getting painted into the same corner because GMAS is profitable and I'm trying to figure out how can I spend this money to grow the company? And I'm struggling with that. Like I, I don't want to be profiting. I want to be reinvesting it. I'm not quite sure what the right way to go about that is. So I'm wondering if like, that's just not in my DNA. Like what's in my (laughs) DNA is to create profitable businesses where profit is the goal, not, not growth and not uh, uh, profit growth over revenue growth. Uh, But that's like a challenge for me right now. On one hand, that really does seem like a good problem to have. You know, you have too much money. How do you spend it? And I think a lot of people would be envious of being in that position. Was there a moment for you where you looked at what you had built in the business that you had created with Django Mail and said, wow, like, I can't believe this. I'm, I'm kind of set. Certainly. I mean, Django Mail was, I was making more money than I had ever dreamed of making when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, I, I did feel good about it. I think I've always been a grass is always greener type of person. So I tend to, I tend to be a fairly harsh critic of myself. And I compare myself to my peers a lot. And when I say my peers, I'm not comparing myself to my software developer buddy down the road. I'm comparing myself to other CEOs of other email marketing companies. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty it's a pretty successful group of people to try to keep up with. And you know, I think I think I've always had this desire to leave a legacy. I've had this desire to be known for something. And with Django Mail, you know, by most people's measure, Django Mail was a great success, you know, good base of customers, highly profitable, exited, sold the whole thing. But I still, I tend to focus on the things I I should have done better, the things I could have done that my peers were doing that allowed them to grow faster. Such a double-edged sword, because I think I'm the same way. And thinking that way sort of drives you to be more ambitious, to to achieve more. And so you're probably more successful thinking that way than you would be otherwise, but you're also probably less happy and less satisfied with whatever you've accomplished at any given moment. You're absolutely right. I am probably less happy than most of my CEO peers just because of the way I see things. So yeah, it is a double-edged sword. Let's talk about the sale of Django Mail because I've had people on here who've sold their companies before, but I've never had someone who sold to a private equity firm. What was that process like and what was going through your head when you decided to sell? First, let me preface that by saying that I had been wanting to sell for about the last three years of running Django Mail. So I was actively trying to sell Django Mail from 2010 to 2013 
And prior to selling, I had seven failed attempts to sell. Oh, wow. Uh, meaning, meaning I had signed a, a letter of intent with, with the buyer. Uh, the due diligence process started. And then for one reason or the other, at some point, the deal fell apart. And that was a pretty good learning experience for me as well. A lot of the people that I ended up uh, in bed with, so to speak, were people that didn't necessarily have the funds to buy the company, but were trying to raise the funds from investors or a bank while simultaneously doing their due diligence on the company. And I just didn't really know any better at the time. But it, se- it seems so obvious, right? It seems so obvious that why would you work with a potential acquirer that doesn't already have the money to buy the company? But I just didn't know any better, and I assumed it was all the same, whether they had the money or not. I just assumed they could get the money if they didn't have it, but that turned out to not always be the case. So when I mentioned those seven failed attempts prior to actually succeeding, a lot of those were trying to sell to somebody that didn't have the money to begin with, which I've learned is a bad idea. How did you turn things around and actually find somebody who did have money and would be a good acquirer for your company? It was a bit of, a bit of luck and a bit of, uh, a bit of timing, a bit of good timing. I hired a, a colleague of mine who was also in the email marketing industry who knew a lot of the other CEOs of email marketing companies. And I hired him to pitch Django Mail for me to potential acquirers. And normally this would be done through like a professional investment bank or some sort of a business broker. And I had used outfits like that in the past as well, but it didn't quite work. And I had a personal relationship with this person. And so we gave it a go and he ended up finding somebody who whose specialty it was to buy software as a service companies that were either declining or had had become stagnant. This private equity group's model was to take that, inject their sales expertise into the company to then grow it and eventually sell it. And uh, so that's that's what happened. And I ended up selling to a private equity group out of Omaha. So in addition to not attempting to sell your company to people who don't have the money, what do you think your biggest takeaways were from that process? And how can someone else who's preparing to sell their company ensure that things go as well as possible? Yeah, you know, well, one of the one of the most frustrating things about going through the process for the first time and not having uh, the education that someone that has been through it would have is just learning about what's involved in due diligence and making sure your books are in order and that your paperwork and contracts and customer lists are all in order and well-organized and easily accessible. One of the things that, from a buyer's perspective, can make a deal go south is if there's this sense of chaos or disorganization in the company, which was definitely true when I first started trying to sell Django Mail. I wasn't aware of everything that would be asked of me. So I just wasn't prepared from a documentation perspective. And I hadn't been because I wasn't organizing customer contracts and vendor contracts over the life of the company like I should have been. So there was a lot of education just in how to run a clean operation that is simple to understand that makes it easy for the buyer to do their due diligence. 
Okay, so now you're at this point where you sold Django Mail. This is a business that was doing very well. It's making millions of dollars a year. I'm sure the sell the sale actually also went well. Why go back into business? Why not just retire and go live on a beach somewhere? That's sort of what I did for a period of time when I sold the company. I had just started dating someone. I was in a new relationship. I was living in a new city and I was I was loving life. I was reading a lot. I was not stressed. And actually, when I reflect upon that year right after I sold, I still think that might have been the happiest year of my life. I just kind of floated along and had random conversations with strangers a lot. I never had to pull an all-nighter fixing a bug or bringing up a server that went down. And it was just a really happy time. But I got bored of it, basically. And I was yearning to create something again. And I didn't know what that thing was, but I've always enjoyed creating software. So when Google released the API for Gmail, that kind of spurred my interest in wanting to create something again. I think I've always been the type who can rest for a little bit, but I wanted to create something. And I, and I think part of it is fueled by this desire to, to leave a legacy on the planet. I'm 41 years old now, and I hope to live a long, healthy life, perhaps into my 80s or beyond. But I have been feeling my own mortality more recently. And, I, and as part of that, I want to, I want to like leave something that's lasting. I want to have created some lasting effect in the software world beyond just making money. And so I think part of the motivation is around that as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's easy to identify with. I think one of the challenges for being in your position is that you'd already had this previous financial success. And so I could easily see you being in a situation where you come up with these different ideas for things to work on, but in the back of your mind, you're questioning, you know, is this going to be as impactful as what I've already built in the past? Did that plan to things for you or did you sort of jump at the first idea that you had? No, I didn't. I, I cycled through a lot of ideas uh, before I, I landed on what I wanted to build. But the way I kind of put into effect this idea of creating a legacy or having a, a more lasting impression than Django Mail did was GMAS is a fairly economical product, and a lot of people use GMAS for free. So there's a couple hundred thousand users of GMAS, and only a very small percentage of them pay to use it. But because GMAS is in the hands of so many more people, I feel like it has the ability to create that lasting impact that I desire. You know, people, you can use GMAS for six or seven bucks a month, um, you know, based on what you choose. And so that allows it to be used by a far greater number of people than, than say, Django Mail, where the minimum pricing was $50 a month. And there was no option to use it for free. So let's talk about these early days of GMAS. Most people listening in right now are in the phase where they probably don't have an idea for what they want to work on, or they have a vague idea, but they're not sure if it's a good one. How did you cycle through all these different ideas and decide that GMAS was the one to go with? Well, I built it not knowing. So I built GMAS on a hunch. And I think that's one benefit that I have being a software developer is I can create a product, get an initial version out, 
usually within a couple of weeks, just based on what the idea is, and throw it out to family and friends and other entrepreneurs that I know and colleagues and see if there's any interest. And so when I was writing GMAS, I actually wrote it out of a hotel room in Hawaii because my girlfriend at the time was doing her yoga training certification in Hawaii, and we were living there for a month. And I hacked together the first version of that in a couple of weeks working out of this hotel room. And I launched it on Product Hunt, actually. This was now September 2015, we're talking about. And it was received pretty well. You know, for, for someone who was like an unknown Product Hunt user who didn't have a substantial following, it got a decent amount of upvotes. You know, I think back in those days, it was getting like a new user sign up every three minutes just by being featured on the Product Hunt homepage. So that's what kind of first introduced GMAS to the world. And then a couple bloggers picked it up. Um, I was on a couple of podcasts and things just, the ball got rolling from there. And that's that's when I thought, all right, I think, I think I've got something here. Let's see what happens. But, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing because I guess I, I tend to live in a lot of self-doubt. So even now, you know, you mentioned what, GMAS's revenues are right now. And, you know, there's a lot of people using it, but I still think like uh, I, at least once a day, I have the thought that this isn't going to work out. And tomorrow, all of my users are going to leave for a competitor's product because <laughs> I haven't done a good, a good enough job keeping up or someone's going to create something better or, or nobody liked my product to begin with. They were just kind of on it randomly. Like it's, it like fuels this cycle of self-doubt that I think is also healthy because it keeps me like it keeps me working really hard, this constant fear I have that everybody's gonna leave. Yeah, and I think you know one of the interesting things about GMAS is that you're in this market that some might argue is crowded. You know, there are lots of email marketing tools that exist. And when most people are trying to come up with an idea, at least first-time founders, they think they have to come up with something that's completely unique. It needs to be something that the world has never seen before, when that's not necessarily the case. Were you worried in the very beginning that you know the existence of all this competition was going to make your life hard? Oh, totally. So, so let me tell you just a little story about pricing with email marketing from the beginning of the email marketing days to now. So when I when I first started Django Mail. We charged $5,000 per million emails sent. So if you're sending 5 million emails a month, we charged you 25 grand a month. So that was back in the days when there were maybe 10 to 15 total email marketing software as a service platforms in existence. But eventually what happened is that the barriers to entry came down. It became a lot easier to start an email marketing platform to the point where email marketing became a, this commoditized service. Like every, everybody was selling the same thing. Everybody almost had the same tagline. Create your campaign, send your campaign, track your campaign. I can't even tell you how many times I've seen the create, send, track tagline associated with some vendor. So as more and more competitors flooded the market, prices were driven down. I mean, now an email marketing vendor is lucky to get $500 per million emails sent in developing GMAS, really the only reason I jumped back into email marketing with GMAS is because I found something that nobody else was doing. And that thing that I found, which is the reason that I wanted to build GMAS, was 
nobody had made it so that you could send an email campaign from inside the Gmail interface. So you're not launching an outside tool. You're not logging into something else. You're doing everything from inside the Gmail interface. And that that continues to be like our X factor because we have a ton of competitors that let you send email campaigns from your Gmail account using an external interface. But the idea of doing that was was uh, I guess boring to me because that's that's what Django Mail was. Django Mail was an external interface that let you send email campaigns, and so because I lived my own life inside my own Gmail account, I wanted it to work within that framework. And so that's the only reason I built it was because that didn't exist, and I wanted that to exist. I had to like I willed that into existence by building it myself. So let's talk about this in a little bit more detail. How important would you say? is the initial idea of GMAS being this unique product that lives inside the Gmail inbox compared to your competitors versus the importance of the subsequent execution. You know, you making the right decisions and advertising in the right places and finding the right customers, et cetera. That is a really good question. So I don't think that I've made a lot of extremely brilliant decisions outside of the fact that the product works inside of Gmail. You know, we've done some things like, you know, we have a blog and we've done some digital marketing and we run Facebook ads and LinkedIn ads and we, you know, we support our customers. We do all the things that other companies do. But yeah, that one standout factor is the method in which the product is delivered. And for the technical folks out there, what GMAS is technically is it's a Chrome extension, which means that it's a plugin for your Chrome browser, which is what allows it to kind of add things inside the Gmail interface. So I think that that is probably the biggest factor in in our growth. I've always tried to do things a little bit differently than everybody else. So like we have created some tools. Actually, we launched a tool today that is kind of like the first for an email marketing service. But we've always kind of taken the approach of building the tool that nobody else has built yet. And so that is probably a factor in the growth. And then the fact that it operates, that the product is delivered in a way that is different from everybody else, that's probably also a factor in the growth. How helpful was it for you to have previous experience in the email marketing business? Is this something that you think you you could have come in with no experience and done the same thing? Or was it crucial that you had started Django Mail and worked on that in the past? I think that's turned out to be pretty relevant because there are features that I've been able to build and optimizations I've been able to make in terms of the delivery of campaigns that my competitors haven't been able to because they don't have as deep of an expertise in email marketing and email delivery that that I do. So and I, I can I can think of examples of how competitors have implemented something where I can say, ah, oh, man, they, they did that because they're not aware of the fact that there's blacklists that list URLs and you need to check those before validating whether a campaign is ready to send and things like that. There's lots of lots of expertise that I have from my years in Django Mail that have been relevant here. So let's go back to these early days of GMAS. You sat down, you've banged out this app in a couple of weeks, 
Uh, you eventually got it to the point where you felt comfortable launching it on Product Hunt, and a few publications picked it up, and that's where you got your first customers. How did you grow your business from there? What were some of the first decisions you made to sort of take this to the next level and turn into a real company? So one of the primary decisions I made early on was that it was going to be a free product. So I didn't, I didn't charge for GMAS until about a year into building it. So I had built up a user base of free users that were sending campaigns in the low thousands of emails a day that when it came time to charge, most were happy to, to then subscribe. So by not having charged for a while, it allowed me to build up a base of, of users that I could collect feedback from that would help improve the product and that were uh, joyfully using it because it was free. And how did you find these users? Were you just like running ads that said, hey, free email marketing? Or did they sort of spread it through word of mouth themselves? Yeah, no, in the beginning, I wasn't running any ads. I didn't, I didn't run any ads until I had started monetizing and kind of set aside a budget for paid ads. So in the beginning, it was, it was some product hunt action, some Reddit action being featured by some bloggers, and then some visibility. Google gives you some visibility just for being a Chrome extension. So you get visibility on the Chrome extension store, which is, which is officially called the Chrome Web Store. And that was enough to bring in 50 to 60 signups a day. And that was enough traction to keep me motivated to keep building the product and adding features and, and supporting those users because I was always doing it with the hope that 50 to 60 users a day would turn into a bit more, should turn into a bit more until the time came to start monetizing uh, and then I could turn it into a real business. Did you have like a detailed product roadmap at that point, knowing exactly what you're going to build, or were you going mostly off of, you know, customer feedback and changing things every week? No, I didn't then, and I don't even today. <laughs> so I I tend to get distracted easily by by like like a bright shiny object in the corner. Yeah. So there are some days where I'll wake up and I'll think oh man, it would be so cool if we had a link validator tool built into GMAS. And then I'll spend like the entire day like building that tool, which probably isn't the smartest decision from a business growth perspective, but that's what fuels the software developer inside of me is to be able to think of an idea and to execute it and to get this thing that I've been working on functional and in the hands of users. The better business approach is to research what users want or research what will add more users to the product and build that, not by building the shiny thing that's like this interesting idea in your head. And I do get, I get caught up in that cycle a lot. I think it's a common thing for programmers to get caught up in that cycle, but it's part of what makes it fun to be an indie hacker, that you have this creative freedom to really build whatever you want and put that into the world, and you have the power to do it You know, in your situation because you're a developer yourself. And so, yeah, if you want to take a day to add your pet feature, then you can just do it and see how it turns out. Yeah, totally. And that's, and that's, that's probably why I would never be good at like raising money or or dealing with investors or dealing with a partner because that mode of operation probably 
wouldn't fly well in a more structured environment. So you say that you probably wouldn't be good dealing with a partner. You've been kind of a solo founder through you know this entire experience running these email businesses. What skills do you think you're most lacking on? Sales and marketing is where I've always been the weakest. And it's also why the model of all my software as a service operations have been salesperson-less models. So my models have always been based on inbound lead generation and optimizing conversion rates, um, not on hiring salespeople to go knock on doors. That's mostly because I've never really understood sales. I don't know how to hire a VP of sales. I don't know how to create strategic alliances with, with other companies. So in a way, that's probably uh, limited my growth. And uh, at some point, maybe I will want to hire that skill but I also like, you know, along with sales and marketing, I, I also kind of have this, I have a little bit of a fear of working with people. And, you know, this, this kind of plays into how we operate GMAS. You know, we, GMAS is a very, is not a customer-centric operation. So I think a lot of software as a service companies, the conventional wisdom is to build a great product and provide absolutely fantastic support to your customers. So, you know, just really hold your customers' hands and that's what's gonna that's what's gonna create great vibes and a great company and culture going forward. So we actually don't do that. I focus on building a great product, but we don't focus on customer support. We kind of tell our customers that they have to figure things out on their own and support themselves. And that goes hand in hand with my general fear or anxiety just in talking to people or in working with large groups of people. And so that's why, you know, my companies have been the way they are, you know, very AJ Goyle centric solo operations with a little bit of ancillary help in different areas of a company's operation. But, you know, my personality, my culture is infused in all aspects of how GMAS operates. I think that's really great to hear. It's like you compensate for the things that you don't feel confident about or that you don't like doing by like really thinking about your business from the ground up in such a way that you won't have to do those things. Not that you're going to do a bad job at them, but you don't even have to do them. I think most programmers probably feel similar to the way that you do. You know, I just want to build the features. I want the product to sort of grow itself. I don't really want to talk to anybody and have to sell my product to them, et cetera. But people run into issues doing that because Marketing is hard as well. Growing by reaching you know, thousands of people without having to talk to them is a pretty difficult challenge. Is there anything you did to engineer your business from the ground up to make that part of it easier? So as a software developer, I, you know, I have my software development strengths and my weaknesses. My strengths are back-end code, uh, databases, uh, server-side stuff. My weaknesses are, are everything on the client side, the user interface, the user experience, the design of the product. I'm a terrible designer. So knowing this, um, I wanted the barrier to entry to signing up and to start using GMAS to be as seamless as possible. And because I, because I have a distaste for or because I my weakness is design and user interfaces, that's also partially why there is no interface for GMAS. Gmail is the interface for GMAS. 
there's no external UI because I hate building UIs. And another thing I like personally dislike about just being on the web in general is filling out forms. I hate filling out forms. So to sign up and start using GMAS, you don't fill out any forms. It's literally a series of clicking things to link your Gmail account to the product and to send your first test campaign. In fact, the only time you have to fill out a form as part of the signup process is if you want to subscribe and that's to put in your credit card number. Yeah, that's super smart to, to do it that way. And you mentioned that you guys aren't a customer-centric company and you kind of tell customers they have to figure this out on their own. How exactly do you do that in a polite way that doesn't upset people and piss them off? It's been a struggle because I can I can certainly say that we have a lot of pissed off customers <laughs> from over the years. And even today, if I if I look through our support queue, I guarantee there's there's 10 or 15 people who are like, what the F? I've had a question in for a week now and haven't gotten an answer. So it, it it's it's a balancing act. Um so I try to communicate it as proactively as possible. So when you subscribe, you get a notice saying that, hey, look, most companies focus on customer support. We don't, but this is how you can support yourself. We have this whole support philosophy that we have a post uh, up on our blog uh, where we kind of reiterate the same principles. But to counter that, we've also written tons and tons of content that answers every question we can possibly think of that a user would have. And so what we do is when somebody asks a question that we don't have a canned response for, then I'll write an article answering that. So hopefully the next time somebody has that question, they will find it. So it's been a systematic process of creating content and adding tips throughout the GMAS application such that the questions don't need to be asked in the first place. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think, you know, in addition to doing that, you mentioned earlier that you've hired, you brought on sort of all remote team and people working in the Philippines and people working in other countries to help you out with, you know, PR and with support and with programming. When did you make your first hire and what is sort of your philosophy for when to bring on people to help you out? Actually, my first hire was in... September of 2016. So it was about a year into running GMAS. And that first hire was a full-time hire in Chicago where she kind of just helped me run the operations for both of my products, GMAS and my other product, uh, WordZen, which we haven't talked about a whole lot, but that's okay. It was just a time where there was uh, I needed someone to bring some organization into the company and to kind of... Uh, uh, help with everything from billing issues to technical support issues to server maintenance issues. And I just needed some someone that was highly trainable that I could teach to do a lot of things to get things off my plate. And so to answer the other part of your question is, when do I know that I want to hire someone? It's usually to offload something that I'm already doing. And I feel like there's a better way to be strategic about hiring. So I don't always want to like hire someone when there's an urgency, which is how it's always been. So like I'm super busy and we've got all of these server maintenance issues. So now I need to hire a sysadmin to take that off my plate so I can focus on the million other things that I have to do. A better approach would probably be to always be looking out for talent where it's not always like a fire drill to, to get someone on board to alleviate the workload. I like talking to you because you have 
this sort of self-aware attitude about you where you're like, I'm doing things this way, but here's the better way to do it. Yeah, right, right. But it's like kind of demonstrating like you can build this company where you're generating a lot of revenue. You're making over a million dollars a year, but you're not doing everything perfectly. And sometimes things feel duct taped together. And sometimes you're just following your passions and building the features that you want, you know, and running your business in the way that makes you the most comfortable. And I think that's kind of what makes running your own company enjoyable. Totally. So I, I recognize that I have a lot of freedom and just independence and a lack of accountability where some of my other tech CEO friends don't because they've raised 10 million bucks, 20 million bucks, and now they are they are accountable to to these stakeholders in their company and they don't have the freedom to just run the company they want to. And you know, their payday comes when the company exits. You know, my payday can come steadily as as I run the company and run the operation. And there's a trade-off because, you know, if 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 there's a big payday for me at the end where GMAS gets acquired, it, it probably won't be as sizable as someone that has has taken on money to to fuel hyper growth. So you talked earlier about having this desire to leave your mark on the world and to really leave something lasting behind. Let's say I gave you this this hypothetical where I can tell you, AJ, I'm 100% certain that if you raise money from investors, you're going to leave your mark on the world. And GMAS will turn into something where you really feel accomplished about it. But you're also going to hate your life and feel accountable and not be able to make the decisions that you want. Like, Or you can go the way that you're going and you're going to be 100% likely to succeed and make a lot of money and build something that's like a successful business, but maybe isn't, you know, as impactful uh, as you want it to be. Which option would you choose? So here's where some cognitive dissonance kicks in because even though I said earlier on, and I I believe that I want to have this lasting impact, and I believe that option one, taking the money to have a, a bigger impact, would be the way to leave a legacy. That's probably never an option I'm going to pursue just because of the sacrifice in independence and just the time and resources that it takes to get a deal done, whereas I could spend that same time and resources in building the product and making it better and fueling the software developer side of me. So even though I want the one thing, I'm not willing to take the approach that will get me that one thing. Yeah, and it's to be fair, it's you know I'm drawing a false dichotomy here. It's not necessarily the case that you have to do all that stuff to build something and leave a lasting impact on the world. But it's interesting to kind of see where your head's at, and you know I wonder how you think about that today, knowing that you have sort of the habits and the desires to keep your business small and endy. Do you still feel like you really want to build this lasting impact thing? I do, I do, but I want to do it. Um... I want to do it at my own pace and in my own way while I'm still in control. So in the end, my, my independence and my creative freedom is probably, that probably trumps the desire to have a legacy, which is why I continue to operate the company the way I do. You know, there was a famous article in, in the Harvard Business Review that came out like 10 years ago. It was called To Be Rich Versus King. I don't know if you've heard of this, but basically the article theorizes that the CEOs that become super rich are the ones that take on money 
and then eventually have a big exit. But the CEOs that prefer to be king, so maintain their independence, control everything, are the ones that don't take on money. And so they don't make as much money, but they continue to be in control. And it presents this this path that entrepreneurs go down um, to be rich or to be king. Yeah, and it sounds like you know most people in the Andy Hacker's audience really care about being king. You know, and that's not to say that being rich isn't great, but there are levels to it, and you can obviously obviously make a lot of money while still also maintaining some level of control over your lifestyle and your business and the creative decisions that you make at work. Certainly, certainly. So let's talk a little bit about this process you mentioned earlier of going from having all these free users of GMAS to deciding to flip a switch and start charging. How did that go exactly? So I remember it was I remember that my my birthday's on August 4th and I remember that my birthday present to myself for the year 2016 was that I wanted to launch my monetization on my birthday. So like July 31st, August 1st, August 2nd, I was working on my integration with Stripe so that I could launch it on August 4th. And I had started by sending out an email to my however however many users I had at that time, maybe 50 or 60,000, saying, hey, you know, starting on August 4th, if you are sending more than 50 emails at a time, we're going to ask you to subscribe. And man, I was so surprised. It was such a such a rude awakening at how much negativity I got in response. You know, I got a lot of got a lot of FUs like, you know, you said this product was free and now you're going to start charging for it. That's that's not fair. Or or hey, you know, you might think that that $7 a month is a negligible expense, but that's that's more than I can afford. And it was just eye-opening because being a U.S. citizen, you know, living in this country, and uh, you know, being in a, a career that is, you know, generally thought of as lucrative, seven dollars a month doesn't seem like a lot. But we had a lot of we had a lot of users in third world countries um, where seven dollars a month was substantial. So initially, there was a lot of uh, uh, there was some backlash. But what turned out the way it turned out is that. The users that wrote back, the people that were upset were the ones that wrote back. The ones that were totally fine with subscribing, I never heard from, and they just paid when it came time to pay. So it created this off-kilter perception in my head that I was I was in trouble because everyone because so many people were upset. But I think, you know, it, it's kind of how life goes where when someone is pissed off about something, they're more likely to write a review on, say, Yelp or TripAdvisor than when they're happy about something. And so that was the case with the initial response that I got. So it was scary. And I remember when I flipped the switch, like you compile the code and I deployed the code where suddenly you had to subscribe to, to send more than 50 emails. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting for that first for that first credit card to be put in and like an hour goes by and two hours go by and not a single credit card has been put in. And I'm like, man, is there something wrong with the code? So then I test it with my own credit card and it works. So I'm like, <laughs> all right, it's working, but nobody's subscribing. Oh, man. Um, and then it hit me. It hit me. This was, I, I was, I was living in Chicago at the time. This was like 2 AM Chicago time. And I'm like, okay, well right now, most of my users are, the users in like India and China. And so maybe I just need to wait until morning US time and then I'll get some subscribers. So I went to bed having zero subscribers, kind of like waiting for morning to come. And when morning came, I popped up out of bed and and checked my phone and 
and I had a I had a handful of subscribers from the morning, so it was it was totally a a roller coaster of emotions. Yeah, it had to feel pretty relieving. What do you think were some of the biggest decisions that you made that helped you go from you know just a small handful of subscribers at first to uh, the you know seven eight nine thousand subscribers that you guys have today? One of the primary decisions was to to keep the interface inside Gmail. So that makes the learning curve really low because uh, you just don't have to learn an external interface. Another decision was to focus on on technical content on our blog. So if you read a lot of a lot of competitors' email marketing blogs, you can tell that the content is written specifically around like certain SEO keywords and phrases that they hope to rank for. And that always kind of bothered me because I've always enjoyed writing and I enjoy reading, but I hate like reading an article thinking, I don't think this article was written to actually teach me anything. I think this article was written just to get some SEO juice out of it. So I wanted to take a different approach from the beginning. So if you look at our blog, all of our content is is fairly technical and fairly in-depth and, and teaches users how to do complex things in the arena of email marketing. And it turns out that that has allowed our content to rank well. So that drives a lot of traffic and a lot of signups. Interestingly, by not focusing on SEO, we ended up ranking pretty well for SEO. Yeah, theoretically, Google's job should be to find the most educational and helpful articles. And so you can kind of, you know, do a bit, cross your fingers and close your eyes and write the best content and hope that Google takes care of the rest. That's always been the hope, but but like millions of SEO firms exist because they've figured out or are hoping to gain the system a little bit. So, you know, in the beginning, I didn't know if my like, I guess, organic, more mindful approach would work. Have you ever worried at all about being so dependent on Gmail that, you know, if Gmail makes a change in their API or somehow changes a rule that your business is done? Yeah, totally. In fact, something just happened a few weeks ago. So, okay, on a regular basis, Gmail changes its code and GMAS breaks. So GMAS is rendered completely useless at least once a month because Gmail changes its interface to the point where all of the GMAS buttons that we add disappear. Wow. And so we've now written a system so that when that happens, my phone like blows up on me so I can address it right away. So that happens on a regular basis, but then Google is also been Google has been in this process of changing things for a while and they just announced this change a few weeks ago where everybody that has built an app on top of the Gmail API starting next year is going to have to start paying Google a fee anywhere from like $15,000 to $75,000 oh, wow. for them to like audit our security. So I guess there have been some less than scrupulous developers that have uh, taken advantage of of the API and tricked users into getting their data. And so Google is taking a more serious approach to developers building specifically on top of Gmail. So they're adding this whole like audit security review process um, starting next year, which I I'm going to write a, a blog post about this. But I my feeling is that this could stifle innovation because now it'll be a lot harder to like have an idea for a new app and just to throw it out there to see if it sticks because one will have to go through this intensive security review process before an app can even be made to the pu- available to the public. 
So there are things like that that have to be kind of dealt with on a constant basis. And so, yeah, I do have this fear that, you know, what if, what if Google decides, hey, um, no more, no more third-party plugins that, that send email in mass through our platform. If Google decided that, then, then yeah, GMAS would be in trouble. So let's say that did happen. You know, GMAS is dead tomorrow. What do you, AJ Gold, decide to do with your life? Well, I mean, I, well, I, I, I wouldn't go down that easily. So I would, I would try to adapt and, and kind of circumvent our email sending around the Google ecosystem. But let's say, let's say for, for argument's sake that, that GMAS was no longer, um, what would I do with my life? I would, I would go back to what I did after I sold Django Mail, which, was, which is I would take time off, I would read, spend time with family, go to Starbucks a lot, random conversations with strangers, and just wait until the next spark. In the history of GMAS, since you started this business in 2015, what, if anything, would you change if you could go back in time? I know, I know what I would have changed. So I've mentioned that I'm a, I'm a bad designer. So the GMAS website and the GMAS Chrome extension reflect a bunch of poor design skills. So one thing I would have done differently from the beginning is I would have had a designer to spend a little bit of time initially to create a good design for the product. And I think that, I think that could have had a significant difference in, in user adoption. So, you know, we have a lot of users, but I think we would have even more if I had gotten the design right from the beginning. And what would your advice be for other people who are listening to this podcast who are you know, maybe inspired by your story and want to set out to build their own ND hacker business? What do you think they should do? From an overarching standpoint, I think one of the things that allowed that has allowed me to be successful is to not follow the patterns that everyone else writes about or blogs about. So there's there's tons and tons of content about how to grow your SaaS business and to how to how to rank for a keyword and how to run a digital marketing campaign. But in the end, I think what's allowed any company to be successful is to carve their own path and to figure out their own unique moves, their own unique strategies that get the product in front of the users. Like I just kind of have this belief that if there's a million articles that teach you how to do something, then learning that skill probably isn't that important to your business. So a lot of the things that I've done to grow GMAS aren't the things that you read about in the articles that exist on how to grow a SaaS business. They're just things that I've experimented with and figured out. So making GMAS a Chrome extension as opposed to an external interface. You know, building, we have this, we have this delivery analyzer tool that tells you if your email is going to the inbox folder or the spam folder. And you know, figuring out the things that you can do that are different from what everyone else is doing. That's great advice, AJ, and I think it'll really help people build things that stand out. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to with GMAS and what's going on in your personal life as well? Yeah, so you can go to the GMAS website. It's gmas.co, G-M-A-S-S dot C-O. Uh, someday I hope to get the dot com, but uh, it's not in the cards quite yet. And you can email me or find me on Twitter. I'm part-time snob on Twitter. 
or email me at ajay at wordzen.com. Thanks so much, AJ. Thanks, Cortland. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.